Amen. Well, hey, as you give, I just want uh, to tell, tell you something. You may be aware of it. Maybe you've seen it in the culture. Maybe you've seen it in your workplace. You maybe even have seen it at home or even in the school in which your kids go. Uh, but there's an interesting truth uh, happening in our world. And studies and sociologists are starting to map out what this truth really means for us. But here's the truth, and maybe you're already familiar with this. Did you know that Christianity in America is actually in decline? Now you're like, man, we just thought saying living hope. Good job, John. <laughs> Way to capitalize. Um, but did you know that Christianity in America is in decline? But it's not in the way that you and I might think. And here's what I mean by that. Studies and sociologists have been looking into this kind of phenomenon over the last decade and figured out that right in the middle of Christianity is what would, they would be kind of described as moderate Christians. Now, a moderate Christian is someone who maybe attends church uh, a few times a year, maybe even goes once a month if they're, if they're really bold or really feeling it, reads their Bible occasionally in a time of crisis, Maybe ask someone to pray for them at the store, but they don't really believe prayer works. Maybe uh, has a personal faith, but never shared it with anyone else. Doesn't really let it influence their entertainment choices or, or their money choices or any of those kind of things. That would be kind of moderate Christianity. And moderate Christianity in the U.S. is on the decline. Now, on the, on the flip side of that, uh, what we'd call kind of radical Christianity People like you and me who are really believing everything Jesus says and says, no matter where he calls me, I'm going to go. And so we give and we serve and we worship and we train up our kids to learn the way of Jesus. And we do all of these things that in our culture just seem a little bit radical, a little bit weird. We share our faith at work. We're not afraid of consequences of praying at a dinner table in a public restaurant. We're not afraid of those kinds of things. And that, my friends, in America is actually growing. True, authentic, radical Christianity is actually growing in America. And I say that's a good thing. I'm, I'm okay with moderate fading away. I don't know about you, but I've got enough people in my life who claim to be Christian, yet their lives look exactly like everybody else. Their entertainment choices are exactly like everybody else. They spend their money or go into debt or do all of these things with their finances that everyone else does. They tell the same jokes and talk about the same things and use the same language as everybody else. There's real no marked difference in them. And that, my friends, in America is on the decline. Now, what's interesting about that? Uh, it reminds me, rather, of, of food. I don't know about you, but it's around 10.30, and I'm already kind of processing what will I have for lunch. I'm trying to scheme how can I navigate going to Chipotle multiple times in one week and convince my awesome wife, who's a budget ninja, how to figure that out. And so I'm going to let her figure that out over the next half hour, but I don't know what your plans are, but food for me is a top priority. It's not in one of the famous five love languages, but I know it's in there somewhere. I'm not, not sure which one it is. Maybe we need to write the book again and put that as a sixth love language. But I love food, and I learned this thing from people who know how to cook around me. Now, I'm not saying I'm a great cook, and you may know a great cook or be married to one, but here's a real little small principle, but it's profoundly true when it comes to good food. Never trust a skinny... Never. 
just don't do it. Never trust a skinny cook, a skinny chef. There's just something wrong about that. And so I learned that really often. Now, I'm not making any fat jokes about anyone I know that's ever cooked really good food. I'm just saying it holds up. Like, it's kind of true. Like, you know, if you go into a restaurant, the guy looks really, really thin. You're like, I don't know if you would eat here. Like, do you just eat kale? Like, what do you, what do you do? Like, and so as you look at that, I think that's true in Christianity as well. Now, it doesn't have to do with food, but here's what I think the scriptures point out. And the story we're going to jump in today really illuminates this for us. Never trust a boring Christian. Never trust a boring Christian. Now that, I'm not saying you should make your life phrase, don't get that tattooed on your arm, like don't do any of those things just yet. But I think the scriptures point out the fact that all of us know, and maybe you know this in the depths of your soul, maybe you've even prayed this, maybe you've thought this, maybe you've had a conversation about this truth, that every single one of us, we are made for more. We are made for more. And you know the feeling. And maybe you've asked the question, when you do a job transition, like, is this my purpose? Is this what I was built to do? Maybe you're in a, a tough relationship and you know that, man, I, there's no way that the scriptures are pointing out that this is how my relationships always have to be. There's got to be more. Maybe there is kind of a sense of, of, of distance from God, but you know that you're built and designed for close and, and intimate and real relationship with God and maybe even experiencing his Holy Spirit on a day-to-day -day basis. And you know that that's not your current reality and yet you feel that you're made for more. As you look at that truth, there's, a, there's an alarming truth between that side and the side that says moderate Christianity is in the decline. And here's why. Boring Christianity is in the decline. And I'm good with that. I don't know about you, but I'm okay with that. I didn't sign up as I followed Jesus nearly 10 years ago to live kind of an okay Christianity. I want it all. I want everything Jesus has for me. I want to know what it means to live in relationship with the Holy Spirit. And throughout the series, Ghost Stories, we've been talking about the power and the relationship that comes from knowing the Holy Spirit and what that does in our individual lives. Week one, two, three, you can catch those online. But today, I want to address the fact that why is it? Why is it that so many of us maybe experience life that just does feel the same? That maybe internally we have the same issues and same anxieties and same thoughts and same struggles and same stresses as everybody else in our world that aren't following Jesus. Why is that? And you've got to ask the question, maybe you have, there's got to be more than this, right? I mean, isn't there a different way? Isn't there more? Is maybe you pick up this book and you read it or you walk into a, a morning like this and experience God in worship and prayer and, and conversation and a smile together. You just got to ask the question, there's got to be more, right? Like, isn't there something greater? Isn't there a deeper level of relationship for me? Well, you're in luck because today we're going to look at a story of a very ordinary person who, like you and me, had a radical encounter with Jesus. And his radical encounter led him, his life, to be on a totally different trajectory than it was before. He's known as Philip the Evangelist. And Philip was an ordinary guy. But we're going to look at something he does that is extraordinary, that points out the fact that we were made for more. And so if you've got your scriptures, I'm going to invite you to turn there. You're going to want to follow along in Acts chapter 8. 
And we're going to start in verse 5, and I'm just going to read it over us and try to place ourselves in the story as asked the question, are we made for more? Is there more? And so in Acts 8, uh, starting in verse 5, this guy, Philip, ordinary dude, Philip went down to a city in Samaria, and he proclaimed the Messiah there. Messiah, if you're not familiar, is a reference to Jesus, the Savior. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now this immediately follows. Introduce this guy named Simon. Again, you see in verse 9 that for some time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip, again, ordinary guy, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And Simon himself, this sorcerer, believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere. Slightly creepy, but we'll see why. Astonished by the great signs and miracles that he saw. See, in this story, Philip, an ordinary guy who'd been radically changed by Jesus, knowing that there was more for him, had a relationship with the Holy Spirit, goes to a place, Samaria, that no one really liked to go. Now, if you grew up in Grand Rapids, you know that there's certain areas that maybe you avoid, certain roads you don't like to take, certain neighborhoods you wouldn't go out to dinner in. That's kind of the same with Samaria. See, Jerusalem was the great city. This is where God's chosen people mainly lived. But 30 miles north was this kind of redneck town, an area called Samaria. Now, Samaria, even the Jews would describe it as a place where half-breeds live. It was kind of a melting pot of people. There wasn't really one central religion. They certainly weren't following in the way of Jesus. And so Philip goes there, and we find out why he's there. Now, as you trace the chapters back, Acts 2, the Holy Spirit comes upon a group of ordinary disciples like you and me. And he sends them out, but he tells them he's going to have a mission. He says, this mission, you're going to go out to all these areas, to Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. Not just your hometown or the places you don't like to go. And then think about even farther than that. And so these guys get this, this calling, this mission. And it takes them about eight, six to eight chapters to actually go do it. And this is where we find ourselves in this story. The, the Spirit is kind of leading and impelling Philip to go to Samaria. And so he obeys. He goes. And this is the first Christian mission outside of Jerusalem, outside of their backyard. And so we see in verse 9, though, he encounters somebody. But only after Philip does some incredible things. And it's easy to gloss over. It's like, yeah, but he's a disciple. Or, yeah, but he, he was walking with kind of the original followers of Jesus. So, of course, but look at what he does. Verse 6, when the crowds heard Philip, because he was preaching Jesus, and they saw the signs he performed. Keeps going. They all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits, think demonic possession came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, and there was great joy in that city. 
See, Philip, an ordinary guy who had a mission from God full of the Holy Spirit, actually in this text performs what we describe as miracles. These signs and wonders pointing to something greater, pointing to something more. And when you do that in your life, you've probably encountered this. There's always going to be opposition. There's always going to be something standing in the way. And so in verse 9, again, if you've got your scriptures, you see what happens. For some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery. And sorcery in the ancient text and in first century Israel was essentially manipulation, a mix of magic and, and the demonic and astrology and all these kind of weird things mixed together. But it was so effective for this guy that he was related to God in this. He was saying, yeah, of course, he's the great power of God. Simon claimed to be, if not God, God's sole and chief representative. Now, you and I are smart enough to know that could get you in some serious trouble. I'm not claiming to do that, and I'm definitely not claiming to be the only representative of God here on this earth. But that's exactly what Simon does. He manipulated the miracle and kind of pointed out his own glory, pointed out himself. And yet Philip is doing this and pointing glory back to God, back to Jesus, back to the way of following after Jesus. But again and again, we see these elements of sorcery in the scriptures. And it seems a little bit weird. And granted, it is kind of weird. But scripture illustrates again and again that sorcerers can imitate but never can overpower. See, the sorcery that we see here in Acts 8 is kind of akin to back in the story of the Exodus. You may remember this from Bible school or something else or Veggie Tales or some other story that you may have grown up watching. Uh, maybe if you're not familiar with it at all, here's kind of what happens in the book of Exodus. We read that Moses, kind of God's chosen leader, goes up to Pharaoh, the leader, the president at the time who is holding God's people in bondage. And he starts to perform similar things to, to Philip, signs and wonders, pointing out that God is greater. But Pharaoh brings out these hired sorcerers who come out and kind of do this weird mix of magic and a bunch of other things. And in a way, it kind of looks like they're, they're rivaling God's power. But sorcerers can never imitate. They can imitate, rather, but never overpower. And this is what we see in this story with Simon. See, Simon claimed to be God's chief representative. And even the people, if you saw it in the scriptures, they were amazed. They didn't understand. Maybe you've watched David Blaine or some other incredible illusionist on TV and you're like, I don't know how he did that, but it's creepy and it looks a little spooky and it looks like there's some ghosts at work or something like that. And you look back, very similar feeling in this story. They were amazed, but they noticed something marked differently about Philip and this interaction of the miracles he was performing. You may know this, again, I don't know your religious background, but 66% but of Americans claim to believe in miracles or the supernatural. Now, here's what's interesting about that. Even if you are one of those people, you may have been like me. Now, growing up, I grew up in a Christian home. Uh, my family was a part of helping plant this church back in the day. And so all these kind of things, I was familiar uh, with Christianity. I understood the stories. I even heard messages like this talking about miracles and the supernatural. And I was like, that's so nice. Kind of like that's cute. Like that, that's cute that that's in the story. That's very interesting. It's kind of like watching Harry Potter. You watch Harry Potter, it's interesting, but you're not saying that's how you should live your life is based off how he does. So it's kind of the same thing. I watched that until one Friday night. It's my junior year of high school. I was dropping a friend off who lived about five minutes away from my house. 
And there was this beautiful and just perfectly paved straightaway that went from her house back to my house. Now, guys in the room, I had a Mazda MX-6 1995 that happened to have a V6 engine in it. And I like to explore the capabilities of said V6 engine sometimes. So I had done that route before, but I wondered on this particular Friday night, could I ever get above 100 miles an hour? Dumb. <laughs> Very dumb. Like some of you are like, you're an idiot. And you're right. I, it was dumb. And so all of that to say, I dropped this person off. And I decide tonight is the night. It's Friday night. It's a summer night. It's dark. There's not a lot of people around. And so I start off. I pull out of this person's driveway, turn onto the road that goes straight back to my house. And I put my foot so hard down on the gas. I just floor it. And I'm going 50, 60, 70, 80. You can do it, little buddy. 90, 100. 110, and I finally peak at just around like 112 miles per hour. And I'm coming over the top of this hill, and at the bottom of the hill, I see three beady-eyed deer. And I was like, I'm dead. <laughs> it's over. Man, that was a fun way to die, but I did not expect this to happen when I'm 17 years old. And I come over this hill. It's kind of fast and furious. My heart is pounding. My hands are sweating. I'm excited. Music blaring until I see those deer. And I'm coming over. And I, I swear that I had air coming off this hill as I go down. And I see these deer kind of as I'm like midair and coming down. And what happens next, I cannot describe to you. I get down to the bottom of the hill. And we all know we live in Michigan. Or at least have lived in Michigan for enough uh, time to know if you hit a deer or or three let's say at 112 miles per hour the chances of you surviving that are very very tiny and I come down to the bottom of this hill and I'm thinking that and I'm literally screaming I'm holding the wheel as hard as I can I know I can't brake fast enough I can't swerve or else I'm gonna die hitting a tree or doing something else and I come down to the bottom of this hill and all I can see is this bright white light it envelops my car. I, I'm not kidding you. It's, it's circling my car. It's kind of a mix of smoke and light, and everything is just circling my car. And uh, it probably was like five seconds, but it felt like 50 hours that I was in this kind of airbound moment coming down into the bottom of this hill with three deer. And all I see is this white light. And seconds later, I'm sitting in my car. It's in drive. My foot's on the brake, and I'm fine. And I don't know what just happened. I don't know how to explain that to you. But there was no deer in sight. My car was untouched. There was no cars coming the other way. There was no cars trying to pass me or do anything else as I'm doing my fast and furious maneuver on Whitneyville Road. Like, there was none of that. And all I could walk away from that moment, as I drove home, it was just a couple minutes from my house, I said, that was a miracle. It was an absolute miracle. It was a sign to me that God was protecting me. God was for me in the moment. Now, we could explain all of that away. It's probably simple to do. But here's the, the thing I walked away from. I, I didn't really believe that God could do things outside of the realm of my own understanding or outside of my possibility, but that shattered all of those. I knew in that moment that I served a God who could do miracles, and that Ordinary people could experience miracles in their 
ordinary lives. See, Philip was not a particularly special guy. As you look in the scriptures, you only see a couple mentions, really, of his name, a couple stories of his name. Philip does not mean miracle worker. His name literally means lover of horses. Like, talk about an anticlimactic name. Like, lover of horses. Oh, that's a good name. Like, let's go with that one. He was a Greek. He wasn't one of the chosen people of God. The only real role we see besides some of these stories, he was a volunteer leader at the local church food pantry. In Acts 6, we see that he was elected to be a volunteer leader at the local church food pantry. And there were two qualifications for that. One was to be full of faith. They had to really believe Jesus and were staking their life upon it. But the second is what I find interesting. And I don't know if you serve here at the church, the chances are we didn't interview you and ask, hey, are you full of faith? And the second one is, are you full of the Holy Spirit? Seems kind of odd, right? Seems a little extra. But the church knew how vital this dynamic and growing relationship with the Holy Spirit really was. And this is what we see Philip continuing to walk out again and again. If you had to ask me, and as scholars have written about this text, the greatest miracle in Acts 8 is not physical healing. It's not even like exorcism of demonic spirits, of impure spirits. It's not how he preached or how eloquent of a speaker he was. The greatest miracle here was his hunger for God, for more of God. See, miracles create a hunger for more of God. They're not designed to be an end in and of themselves, but to lead us deeper and deeper into a relationship with the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what happened that night when I was a junior in high school. I encountered something that I couldn't understand and recognize that God was calling me into more. And I just want to ask the question. Now, maybe you've thought this as you've read the scriptures or thought this even in the church and thought this as maybe you've had a conversation with a friend. What if you, you, actually you, what if you are the next Philip? Do you believe God could use you and I as ordinary, regular, lover of horses, type people. Do we believe that? Do we believe God can do more? If we were built for more, if we admit that, hey, we're made for more, and we believe that God can do the supernatural things that don't always make sense to us, radical healing, casting out demonic forces in our lives, all these things that seem like kind of ghost stories to us before we really follow Jesus, but do you and I believe that we could be the next Philip? Bill Johnson, a pastor in California, has this this phenomenal teaching on miracles. And he talks about this. He says, miracles are not just what God can do, but they're also about what God can do through you. We see that in the scriptures. The, the point was not Philip's own glory, but again, he preaches the kingdom of God and performs miracles. He's telling people, repent, be baptized, get saved by Jesus, but also heals them and raises up paralytics from the ground. Think about your best friend, maybe, who's in a work accident. And this ordinary guy, like a Philip, walks through your neighborhood and is talking about Jesus and proclaiming the good news, and then the guy gets out of his wheelchair and follows him. That's exactly what happens here. This isn't like a super elite group of people. These are ordinary people in a backwoods town called Samaria in which God does a miracle. And it creates in them a hunger for more. Phil Philip 
teaches and preaches. Men and women are baptized. He performs signs and wonders. And the great sorcerer, the great power of God is dethroned by the real God and shows up and starts to follow and asks to be baptized and starts to follow Philip around. Those are the kind of situations in which we were made for. We were made for more. And miracles create a hunger for more of God. And so, if you're sitting here today with situations that, fa- like, they feel weighty, they feel overwhelming, you just got to ask. Ask the God who can give you more. And it's not always that simple of just saying, I, I need $100, so I'm going to pray, God, give me $200, he's going to give you $200. God is not a jukebox, God is not a formula, he's not a spiritual vending machine, you need to know that. But what God does is answer prayers for more of him in every single person's life. And miracles create and stir up that hunger. And so maybe today, again, you face a situation that is in need of a miracle. And you need kind of a Philip moment. Someone maybe like a Philip to step in and, and to perform a miracle or, or to seek God for a miracle, even maybe even using you. Ordinary, normal you. You just got to ask. If you want to know how to seek miracles, if you want to know how to experience more of God, it starts by asking God for more, more of him, more of his Holy Spirit, more of a desire, more awareness, more ears to hear and eyes to see what he's up to. Just ask for more. Some of you need physical healing today. Some of you have incredible physical obstacles that actually do hold you back from fully encountering the life God has for you. Ask for more. Don't quit on praying for intentional and radical healing of your body. Some of you have relational situations that seem really, really overwhelming and and hard and crushing at times. Maybe uh, an ex or a, a sibling or a grandkid that it's like there's no way we ever are gonna talk again. There's no way we're ever gonna have a good and meaningful relationship again. And you need God to work a miracle. I'm just telling you today ask God for more maybe you do have financial challenges today maybe you're the person who wrote provision and and there's some severe issues and severe obstacles to you really encountering God's provision in your life and you've given up praying you've given up asking you've given up on what God can do and he's telling you just ask me for more ask for more seek me for more And if that's you and you know that you need to ask for more, I'm just going to call you to do one simple thing this week. It's very easy. All of us can do it. Yet if we do it, it has the potential. It has the latent potential in every single one of our lives to really change us, to really see God work a miracle. And it's this. Simply share what more would look like with one person this coming week. Start by talking about it. Start by maybe verbalizing the dream. Start by maybe verbalizing the struggle, verbalizing the obstacle that is holding you back from more, and just share it with someone. Maybe that's a spouse or a friend, or I'd love to talk with you as your pastor about all those things. Just pick somebody and share it with them this coming week. Don't miss out on more. And finally, as you think about this, you may ask the question, what's at stake? I mean, I'm maybe content with where I am, or I feel like I'm growing incrementally. I don't really think I need more. Well, let me tell you who does need more of God. It is our community that God has entrusted us with spiritual responsibility over. 
And that may be your backyard friends, it may be your neighborhood, that may be Byron Center, that may be Kentwood or Wyoming or Dora, wherever you're coming from this morning. But you have a spiritual responsibility as someone who follows Jesus to bring more into that community, to bring more of him into that workplace, to bring more of his Holy Spirit into your home, into your finances, into your prayer life, into everything that you do throughout the course of a day. And our community is desperate for that. We don't need another boring church. We don't need another church that's okay with moderate Christianity. We need a church that's alive and is salt and light to our world and is full of God doing the miraculous. And that's the kind of church we could be. Christianity in America is in decline. And that just might be a good thing. Let's pray together. God, I think about the person who, even today, just knows that, that your word to them is to ask for more, that there is a situation in which they're feeling overwhelmed and crushed spiritually. That as we sang before, the mountain is just, it's too high. God, the chasm in their life and the gap between their own experience is so wide. That the emotion or the conflict or the brokenness is just too deep for them to reconcile and make right on their own. God, I pray that in these moments that you, we just sense you near to us in that. That you would sense the God who suffers with us next to us in those moments. That we'd sense the spirit of Jesus who has been raised from the dead so that we could have full life. I pray that that type of spirit would exist and grow and be cultivated in us. That it wouldn't just be a ghost story, but that we'd fully know you and know your Holy Spirit. Kind of the sincerity of this moment. I wonder if, as a church, we can actually take a step towards that in our own lives and as a community of faith. And if you know that you're one of those people this morning that needs to ask God for more, you are calling out to God saying, God, I need you more. I know I'm your child, yet there's fear and, and obstacles and stress or depression or other things that are crowding you out. And I just need more of you today. I need to experience a miracle of you today. If that's you, I'm going to invite you with everyone's eyes still closed just to stand up in your seat right now so I can pray directly for you. If that's you, to stand up right now. Amen. And if you sense that a person's nearby that's standing, I'm just going to invite you to either lay hands on them if you know them or just for us as a church to extend a hand in that direction as we pray. So let's pray together. God, we're asking right now with hands extended, with hearts open, that you would allow us to encounter you more. That in our own lives, you would do a miracle. And for some of us, that may be a literal physical healing. God, physical healing. God, we stand on the shoulders of people who come from a line of faith that trust that you can do the miraculous in us and through us. So I'm praying today 
for the people who are standing before us, part of our church family, and we are asking on their behalf, you would do more, that you would show up more, that you'd make yourself more known and present than ever before in their lives. We pray that you would within our church, and maybe it's these individuals, maybe it's someone who's not yet in the room. I pray that you would raise up more Phillips among us, that we'd be people that not just are content with talking about what you could do or speculating about what you could do, but experiencing what you can do. And we pray that in boldness as your children. So Father, we trust you. Our hope is, is really in you, the God who can do miracles, the God who drives out fear with his perfect love. We pray this all in the strong and powerful name of Jesus.